you're a big, you're an egg fan, right? Like a big. Yeah. Like I mean, egg. I'm a, I'm a, yeah, I'm an egg fan. Sure. Yeah. But let's, you let's start with that. Hey everyone, Morgan here, co-founder of Primal Kitchen and welcome to the Primal Kitchen podcast. This week, I'm getting personal with Mark on his daily diet, breakfast, and thoughts on training. A quick reminder, any and all opinions and views shared by hosts and guests on this podcast are the speaker's own. Do not represent the view of Primal Kitchen or its affiliates or parent company. Hey, hey. How you doing? Good. Good. I'm just laughing because um, I got made fun of in the YouTube videos on the background here, and now I have my matching orchid to the matching orchid in, in your background. In my background, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Really I spent a lot of time on my background. Yeah, can, I can tell. Can I can tell. Yeah. <laughs> we need to get Carrie in there, do some work. Um, okay, so this is great. I want to touch on like a few things. This is going to be like rapid fire Q&A today for everyone listening. We, we're going to do a quick, just give me a rundown these days. I'm sure it's changed a little bit over the years, but I feel like probably not that much. Like, give me the five minutes on what is Mark eating a day? Um, it has changed a little bit over the last a bunch of years. Um, most notably, uh, I kind of base my, my weekly diet around a daily, uh, big ass salad. If you remember, that was sort of the, one of the, one of the words we coined in the early days of Mark's daily apple, the big ass salad. And I was a fan of putting as many, uh, different vegetables into a, a bowl and putting some salad dressing in there. And that's in fact, one of the reasons that, uh, we decided to put out primal kitchen was I, I couldn't find salad dressings that would kind of match my specifications. Um, having said that, uh, my, my, my routine is pretty much the same it's always been, which is based on two meals a day, not three. Um, I, I wake up, have a, a, a cup of coffee, like a strong cup of coffee with some heavy cream in it. Um, I do use a little monk fruit sweetener. Um, and then my first meal is typically 1230, 1 o'clock, 130, sometimes 2 o'clock. Uh, today I had uh, a, a, one stone crab leg and a uh, a burger without the without the bun that was lunch and it was plenty and it was fine uh so i will have what i think most would consider you know a modest lunch always based on protein uh i don't really worry too much i, I never i really never worry about about saturated fat in my uh diet um i do worry about industrial seed oils so if i'm having a salad, which I might have on occasion for lunch. Uh, I have to make sure it's either a Primal Kitchen product with avocado oil or something based on extra virgin olive, uh, olive oil uh, and not these, you know, store-bought dressings and certainly not the kind of concoctions they make in restaurants with soybean oil and canola oil and corn oil and so on and so forth. So, um, so yeah, so the, the lunch is a modest lunch. I almost never have a snack in the afternoon. If I do, it's a handful of nuts, uh, and, and again, typically now I'm paying attention to the linoleic acid content of my diet. I want to reduce that. So I won't have sort of regular mixed nuts. I would have like macadamia nuts or something like yeah. that. And then dinner, um, uh, focus on protein, usually a big piece of steak, uh, a good sized piece of fish, some uh, vegetables, either steamed or grilled or something like that, slathered in butter. Um, I enjoy red wine, so I'll have a glass or two of red wine with dinner. Uh, I try not to eat dessert. Uh, sometimes I'll have a bite. You know, I spent uh, two months in Europe this summer on and off, and you can't go through Europe and not eat a little bit of, you know, try the, the desserts and try some of the goodies that, 
they have there. But I'm pretty, pretty strict about not incorporating uh, dessert or any sort of sweet after dinner food in my diet. So it's 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 um, everything I eat is tasty, and I and I really uh, that's the focus of what I'm trying to do here. I'm trying to make every bite of food I put in my mouth taste great. I'm not trying to deny myself anything. What I am trying to do is optimize my metabolic flexibility by not overeating just because food is available. So to go back through this, it's really, other than the coffee, it's no breakfast. It's a modest lunch, maybe a snack in, in the middle of the afternoon, but, but usually not. And then around 7.30 or 8 o'clock, because that's when I like to eat, um, you know, a, a regular uh, dinner focused on protein, again, could be steak, could be fish, could be lamb, could be pork. I'm, I'm not a big fan of poultry anymore. Uh, and some, and some vegetables. I, why, what's with the poultry? Here? You know, it's just, uh, it's, uh, because I'm, um, paying attention to my palate and what really tastes good to me and, and the quality of the, of the protein, I've decided that I just, uh, I don't think that, that, that chicken, uh, is really that nutritious. I think uh, some of the fats in chicken are not as uh, not as as health healthy or beneficial. There's probably more linoleic acid. Again, more of the omega six fats in chicken. Um, I'm not a fan of how most chickens are raised. That's a topic for another day. But um, I just have sort of gotten away from from chicken in that regard. Now I will have turkey over Thanksgiving and probably over Christmas. Yeah, awesome. What about Beer? Are you doing still doing non-alcoholic beer? Um, I once in a while I do non-alcoholic beer. If I, I mean I keep some always in the refrigerator, and it's a great thirst quencher for me. If I come back from say a hot bike ride um, today, uh, I did hour and fifteen minutes uh, on the fat bike on the beach. Yeah. Um, and it wasn't that wasn't that hot today, so I didn't really need to quench my thirst. But some days when I get get back from something like that. The, the sort of the, the taste of beer is the one thing that will really satisfy my, yeah it'll slake what my thirst. Not alcoholic beer that you were always looking for at like Sohas and they never had it. What was um, it? Well, uh, St. Pauli, uh, you know, makes it, makes a great one. Was there like and, a bitten something? Bitten yeah, one? there was one. Yeah. There, there, there have been a couple over the years uh, that, you know, that, that I've got that I was into, but uh, I think St. Pauli girl was the, Probably the number one there. Yeah. Um, yeah. Good. I like it. And like, how often are you eating out and how often are you at home these days? Uh, we eat out way too much. Yeah. And, and I don't, I don't, you know, I'm not complaining because we choose to do it. It's yeah. just that uh, we, we've moved into a new um, area of our lives in, in South Florida here where we have a ton of friends who are um, great people great to hang out with very social. And so there's always, something you know, going something going on an invitation to go to dinner. And, um, you know, I think with the, with, with what ha- happened with COVID last year and everybody being closed up, more people are inclined to go out and take advantage of the yeah. newfound freedom as For it sure. were. So, um, whereas in the past, I used to love to go out and used to like, you know, couldn't wait to, it was a big event to go out for dinner. Now it's a big event to stay home for dinner and just, uh, you know, cook up a, a yeah. giant steak and, and, uh, you know, catch up on uh, some binge watching or something. Yeah. So how many times a week are you eating steak? Would you say? 
Oh, I mean, it, it was steak. I mean, I eat uh, beef uh, five times a week. Um, I eat lamb, you know, in addition to that, I might eat some lamb. I might have some pork. I might have uh, fish. I mean, I have a sort of a, a little bit of a routine here. Every every Monday for lunch, I go to a restaurant down the street called Santorini. It's a, it's a great place here in South Beach. And they, there's one dish I get every Sunday or every Monday. It's a salmon. So they may just make a great salmon. Um, I uh, Where are you going there with? Is is this like a social thing or is this just. No, a- no, I just, no, I go alone. So that's, that's my, I walk over there. It's, it's literally a block from my house. Yeah. I walk over there. I do some work while I'm there. It's just part of a little routine I incorporated a couple of years ago. I love it. Yeah. It's great. You're loving this like walking lifestyle of Miami, huh? Oh yeah. No, it's um, completely different from what I was used to for the prior two decades in Mal- Malibu, where Malibu is a, automobile community. And even though it's in the mountains and, you know, comes the mountains come down to the ocean and it's idyllic and beautiful and serene. And, you know, there's lots of great hiking and there's lots of great biking and stand up paddling. You have to get in a car to do any of this stuff. You have to, you know, go get a cup of coffee, go buy a paper, go to the gym. You got to drive wherever you're going. You know, we lived in Miami beach for a year and didn't have a car. We just walked everywhere or Ubered if we had to go someplace. We do have a car now, but uh, I still, I had a car for two um, for two and a half years here in Miami beach. And it has like 3,500 miles on it. Yeah. So, sounds like yeah. us. I mean, COVID yeah. happened and yeah, I mean, we lease this car. I'm, I'm going to buy it out because it has like no miles it's, on it. No, it's worth so much it's, now too. It's you crazy. Can, and the no, used car value is like through the roof. So, yeah, I mean, yeah. you can't even get another car. So why not yeah, just exactly. hang on to it? But that's yeah, yeah. too funny. Okay. Now you're a big, you're an egg fan, right? Like a big, yeah, like I mean, it. I'm a, I'm a, yeah, I'm an egg fan. Sure. Yeah. But let's, let's you start with that. Eat them. If you're never eating breakfast, are you ever? No, but that's, omelet? see, that's, that's really interesting because um, people assume, you know, eggs are breakfast food, but a lot of times uh, I will break my fast. I will start my day with a first meal at one thirty or two o'clock in the afternoon with an egg dish because I like them so much. So um, I like an omelet. I love an omelet for, uh, for lunch. Um, I, I wouldn't, I'm not sure I would uh, elect to have an egg dish necessarily for dinner, but for lunch, it's a great yeah. food for me. I love it. It's great. So no, do you ever eat breakfast? Is there like a, ever an instance where you. Yes, I, I do. And so once in a while, um, if I've broken the routine, um, I I'll have breakfast, but the routine that I'll break is typically when I'm traveling. So if I'm, yeah. you know, uh, skipping time zones and kind of, going through a process of reorienting my body to a new time zone. Um, sometimes like we were, we went to France uh, about a month ago for a week and I had breakfast um, three days in a row there at nine o'clock in the morning, just because I woke up, uh, my wife was going to sleep in. I felt like, well, breakfast was included in the room. Yeah. So, so there's that. <laughs> and it was like, I, I'm not, trying to hold myself to this ultra strict schedule. What I'm, the purpose of this is to, again, optimize um, metabolic flexibility, your ability to burn fat and to exist uh, deriving energy from whatever food substrate or whatever stored energy substrate is available on your body at the time. So part of metabolic flexibility is being able to adjust uh, 
back and forth and to some days go all day without eating at all, like truly fasting and other days to maybe have three meals. Yeah. But I find that when I have breakfast on those occasions, when I'm traveling, um, I'm still, I'm not interested in lunch then because it's just, I'm, I'm on, I, I am of this um, opinion and this mindset. And then it's really ingrained in me now that three meals is just too much food and I got shit to do. You know, I don't have that time to be stopping and sitting down and, and consuming stuff three times a day, let, uh, let alone the five or six that some yeah. Some people seem to think is appropriate with snacking and everything. What's up with this? I feel like sometimes I eat breakfast and then I'm more hungry the entire day. Like if I don't, I'm not hungry in the morning. If I don't eat breakfast, yeah. I have lunch, I'm good. But when I, and I'm not eating like waffles or pancakes for breakfast. I mean, I'm eating, you've seen me. I mean, I'll yeah. go out. I mean, I don't do eggs because I have an allergy, but I'll order like, you know, sliced tomatoes with avocado and a side of sausage or something, right? It's yeah. not like I'm spiking my blood sugar or maybe I am just by no, you are. I mean, what's happening is taking, rolling this back uh, a thought, um, you know, as I say, all the good things happen in the body when we're not eating. So the, the longer you can go without eating and not make it uncomfortable um, on a, on a regular basis, probably the better off you are. Yeah. So most people who are into this, either the keto or the ancestral or primal paleo, the most people are doing this way of eating now, have what they call a compressed eating window or yeah. time restricted feeding. I mean, it has all these different monikers to it, right? But the bottom line is um, you try to compress the amount of time that you're eating into an eight hour period. And in, in my case, it might be one or one thirty PM to seven or seven thirty PM. And that's it. And then I don't eat the next 18 hours. Uh, and that's when all the good stuff is happening in the body. Well, when you do eat, it sort of starts the, the digestive processes. And so having, having breakfast, um, and this is an issue for a lot of, a lot of people having breakfast seems to satisfy people. They wake up hungry, so they have to have breakfast. That's why many people have labeled it the most important meal of the day, but then the very act of having breakfast and starting the digestive process, um, also starts a number of hormonal, um, uh, events that take place in the body that lead you to be hungry. Uh, a few hours later. And, uh, and then it repeats as a roller coaster throughout the day. So people who really are at the, um, uh, at the mercy of this roller coaster effect would have breakfast, and then a donut or a bagel at work, and then lunch, and then a mid afternoon snack, and then dinner, and then something watching, you know, TV at night, and it get, gets out of hand, it gets out of control. And it really, um, it puts people on a on a, this uh, kind of a uh, treadmill toward uh, overweight, obesity, type 2 diabetes, or at least metabolic syndrome, increased risk for cancer and heart disease, um, uh, you know, inflammation throughout, systemic inflammation, because the body never has a chance to rest and repair and recover. It's always dealing with an onslaught of, of new calories that it has to figure out what to do with. Do I burn them now? Do I store them? Do I, uh, do I increase the body's thermal regulation to burn off the calories because I don't want to store them. The body has all these decisions it has to make whenever you eat. When you don't eat, the body has very easy decisions. It's like, okay, uh, there's no food. This is cool. We're just going to burn off stored body fat. That's the reason we store body fat in the first place. Uh, we're going to uh, create ketones and, and, and fuel the brain. The brain prefers ketones over glucose. Uh, we're going to start doing uh, 
repairs to cells that are damaged. We might even even um, consume some cells that are not worth repairing. Uh, we're going to repair DNA in some of the cells. And, and so all of these wonderful things take place when you're not eating. And they cannot, almost by, by the very nature of the process, cannot take place as a repair mechanism during those times that you are eating or during those times that you are continuously um, not maybe just ate, but you're still digesting the food and all these other processes or are, are, are all these other sort of switches are switched on and the repair mechanisms are switched off. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm a big fan of the fasting thing. I, there's just like even so much more science coming out. Like it seems like every day on the benefits mm-hmm. of it. So if, if you're going to break a fast, is there a right way to do it, a wrong way to do it? And are you doing 24 hour fasts? Like, or are you just more like every day kind of time restricted eating? I mean, I'll do, uh, I'll do 24 hour fasts. Um, <clears throat> if I'm traveling again, if I'm, if I find myself forced into a position where I can't eat or it's, un- or it's inconvenient to eat for any length of time, I'll go, great. Uh, this is, I don't have to worry about lack of calories. I'll revel in the lack of calories. Yeah. I'll be fine with that. So I can, you know, I'll go, um, um, 24 hours on occasion. So I'll go typically dinner to dinner without eating. And then if I'm involved in a project, sometimes even at home, I'll do that. I'll go dinner to dinner and um, it's easy to do. And it and yeah, dinner not, to dinner sounds manageable. When, yeah. when I think 24 hours, it just feels like so much, but I guess it's really not when you think dinner to dinner. Well, you and I, we know a lot of people who have one meal a day, you know, I mean, yeah. whether it's uh, Todd White at Dry Farm Wines, you know, I think Brian McAndrews probably does one meal a day these days, yeah. you know, our cameraman. Yeah. Um, there, there are a lot of people we know that that not only just do it, they thrive on it. Right. Yeah. So it's a it's a real thing. And it, again, it comes down to comfort and convenience, but it's also um, a recognition that all the good stuff happens when you're not eating. So yeah. why not maximize the time you're not eating with the caveat that you you must not make yourself uncomfortable about it. You must not let hunger kind of cave you in. But if you've become metabolically flexible and if you're if you're occupied with the rest of your life enough that you're not just you know walking over to the refrigerator every every hour or two for a snack, it's easy to do that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so what's the way to break the fast? Does it matter? I mean it matters, sure. Um and it depends on the length of the fast. So my wife, uh Carrie, as you well know, has done 7-day water fasts. Oh, she's getting doing that she's, right around our wedding. Remember, she, she did that in San Diego right before our wedding. That's, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. And that. she did it on her birthday here in Florida last year. Um, she's getting ready to do another one and she loves them. And she's, you know, she feels whatever, cleansed by them and, and reset and refreshed and, and everything. But a seven day fast. So when you come off of a restriction like that, you really have to ease back into life, right? You ease, You can't just go out and have a giant, uh, you know, lobster thermidor steak dinner, yeah. surf and turf kind of, kind of kind of meal. You have to literally you eat broth for the first meal, and so you you ease your, your way back into that because you've really um, taxed the system. You've really ta- taxed yeah. the system. On the other hand, if you're doing um, you know time restricted feeding and you're and you're coming off of 18 hours and or 20 hours of not eating, which some people and I'm one who would say that's not really even a fast. It's just time restricted eating. Yeah. Then, then you would do maybe, um, you know, I, I think focus always on protein. That's always my big thing is to focus on protein. Um, typically, even if you haven't eaten for a while, you've consumed water. You know, you're you're taking care of your 
hydration needs. You're paying attention to your thirst if you have thirst. So that's not an issue. It's not like you're starting from, from real true zero there. Um, yeah. So I just, I think as much as I've always been a fan of, of protein, I'm more a fan of protein now as like the essential uh, macronutrient to which you have to pay attention. If you can get the protein right, everything else sort of falls into place very easily. Interesting. And getting it right, meaning what? How do we know if we get it right? Well, I mean, just getting it right typically means getting enough of it. It's it's not now there now there is a lot of work that looks into uh, the question is, can, it, can you have too much protein? Yeah. And if you are eating um, healthily and if you are not, you know, uh, gluttonous about your meals, then you probably won't want to overconsume protein. Uh, it's not like you're going to have a hundred grams of protein at, at dinner and then have 50 or 60 grams of protein, or maybe, maybe more, um, at, at the next meal at the, at lunch the next day. And if you do, that's only 160 grams. So you're not going to overdo the protein. What you could possibly do is underdo the protein. And so I, I would say that, um, that's, when I say pay attention to it, it's probably easier to underdo the protein than to overdo it, especially if you're um, if you if you've um, sort of relegated your eating schedule to two meals a day. Yeah, yeah, makes sense. Um, what about working out when I'm fasting? I mean, I only work out fasting. I don't know why anybody would work out on a full I'm stomach. I'm the same. I ate by accident. I mean, I was out with the boys and Adam like one morning, and they you know they eat breakfast three and one and a half. They were hungry yep. when they wake up, right? Growing little guys. And I ate, I went and played tennis like I do three times a week. I couldn't even play tennis. I mean, literally, I don't know how people, I don't know how I, I, I don't know. Growing up, I never wanted to eat breakfast. I remember my mom being like, you have to eat something. You have to eat something like sending me out the door with like a s'mores pop tart. Like I shit you not. Right. Like I was definitely way better off not eating than having a bagel with cream cheese in the morning. And you know, when I was yeah. sick or whatever, but but I don't, I agree. I don't know how people work out with a full stomach. Well, for a couple of reasons. Number one, um, if you have a anywhere near a full stomach, if you have food in your stomach, you're diverting blood flow um, to, you know, the mesentery, the part of the, part of the blood supply that, that supplies um, the digestive tract. You're diverting it away from muscles. So you're, you're not, your efficiency as an athlete, whatever form of activity you're doing is going to be compromised because your digestion is now fighting for blood flow with the muscles that are actually supposed to be doing work. So that's point number one. Point number two is there's nothing that you could eat right now that's going to provide some magic amount of energy on the tennis court or in the weight room or on a run or a bike ride. Um, it's it's almost impossible to conceive that you're going to contribute to the gas tank uh, with a final meal before your activity. What's happening is when you start your activity, you have glycogen in your muscles, and the muscles are going to burn glycogen if you're doing a say a tennis a tennis game uh, or some uh, high intensity work, some what we call glycolytic activity. Um, you know, there's fats that are stored in the muscle. There's fats that are stored in the, in the fat cells. 
of, that are being released into the bloodstream that are available for fuel. So that's what your body's going to use mostly for fuel. And that's what you want your body to use for fuel. So you want to, um, you want to go into a workout feeling comfortable because A, you don't have anything in your stomach that's competing for blood flow and B, knowing full well that all of the energy substrates that you're going to use in that workout already exist, whether or not you had a meal. Now, it's there's a little bit of an asterisk there. If you've been a sugar burner your whole life, if you're someone who's never really uh, trained your body to effect, efficiently burn fat, and let's just say you're an endurance athlete, and you wake up for a race in the morning, um, not having had breakfast and certainly not having eaten since dinner the night before, there's an argument that 40 or 50 grams of carbohydrate, because that's all you're good at burning, uh, would, would help you through that race uh, because it would provide a little bit more fuel for the muscles in the liver, which have spent the night depleting somewhat uh, those fuel supplies. But again, it's an insignificant amount that contributes to what the overall effort is going to be when you get out there. You want to burn the glycogen in your muscles. You want to burn the fat in your muscles, the fat in your, that's in your uh, bloodstream via by way of uh, the fat cells. Um, then um, the question is, well, doesn't that mean I should eat right after my workout? Like that was another big uh, mantra during yeah. my days of training as an athlete in the seventies and eighties. In fact, you know, I bought into it fully. I had, um, I developed uh, one of my first products I developed uh, called Carbo Concentrate. And it was a, uh, a drink that you consumed after a workout. Yeah. Um, and you'd consumed it after a workout to take advantage of what they used to call the 40 minute window of opportunity where your body was fully prepped to, to uh, refill the glycogen supplies. Now the concept was, first of all, that you had, um, you'd done some activity that had, that, that had fully depleted your glycogen. So typically that was going to be a, you know, a long 10 or 15 mile run in my day. And then it was also based on the notion that you were going to get up and do it again tomorrow right. and the next day and the next day and the next day. So, so taking advantage of this little window of opportunity where the body was going to remanufacture glycogen at a slightly higher rate than it would have outside the 40 minute window of opportunity. But that became like a, you know, that became the standard advice and conventional wisdom of the endurance community for 20 years uh, to consume. It, it wound up being ultimately a, a, an 80-20 concoction of 80% carbohydrate and 20% protein. Now, that, that whole concept has kind of fallen by the wayside for a couple of reasons. Um, one is that you don't really, um, unless you're a top endurance athlete, and, and competing on a regular basis and doing hundreds of miles of cycling and running and whatever, you don't need to refill the glycogen stores that quickly. They're going to refill anyway. So there's no reason to start the process 40 minutes after you just came straggling through the door, panting and sweating to get ready to do it again the next day. Cause the body will remanufacture glycogen. Um, the other is that you want to, and this is probably the most important, when you work out fasted, um, 
particularly if you're doing weights in the weight room uh, or if you're doing interval training, high intensity training, um, there's a real response the body has to that work in real time. And it's a pulse of growth hormone and testosterone. And that's what prompts, what's one of the mechanisms that allows the body to build back stronger from the effort you just did, provided you give it enough time to recover. So that building back stronger um, is enhanced by this pulse of growth hormone and testosterone. The problem could be um, that if you were, and, and that happens automatically after the workout. One of the issues with that is that insulin will blunt the growth hormone response and the testosterone response. So insulin will blunt those. So high insulin is not a good thing. Well, if you consume a meal right after a workout and insulin goes up, then you've blunted one of the main reasons that you wanted to go bust your ass in the first place. Interesting. So it's a very um, vicious cycle uh, within the endurance community. It certainly used to be that not only would you have to rethink about in terms of replenishing the, the refilling the car, the carbo load every meal, basically, but ref, refilling the glycogen stores because you were going to go do it again tomorrow. But in so doing, you were, you were negating some of the effects of the workout that you were trying to get. So you're better off not eating and probably not even working out hard the next day and let the recovery and the rebuilding and the building back even stronger take place. Because at the end of the day, hopefully the only reason you're training is to get stronger. You're not, I hope you're not training to just wear yourself and tear yourself down. A lot of people are. A lot of a people lot of, are. A I lot mean, of people do that. Yeah. And they and they and they take great pride in that. But that's really not theoretically, that's not why you're training. You're training to become better at whatever it is that you want to do. And the danger there is that you go from from improving in these different areas, you improve your aerobic capacity, your strength, your maximal uh, power output, you improve all these areas um, because you've selectively chosen specific workouts that focus on each one of those little building blocks that, it, that, that will ultimately create a better athlete. And instead of going down that strategic route, you just kind of practice hurting every day. And, yeah. you, and so now you hurt every day, you tear down, you feel like shit, you're tired. And by the way, you don't get any faster or you don't get any stronger or you don't get any better at your sport. And yet I see so many people who are in that area that we call the black hole of training. Yeah. You were there. Were you? Not? I was there for a long time. Yeah. yeah. I mean, what is this? What is it about the psyche that like puts people there? You think uh, it's a sickness. And I'm, and I'm not saying that lightly because, um, there was a point uh, for a long time in my life where, you know, if I didn't, if I didn't do a hundred miles a week, um, I was not a good person in my own mind. I wasn't, I wasn't fulfilling my, you know, my, my objective. I wasn't uh, keeping my, keeping up with my agreements with myself. Mm -hmm. um, I was guilty for having missed a day. So it was really the discipline of getting up every day and doing it again and doing it again. And over time, what happens to brain um, acclimates to that. It habituates to that. It literally, I would, people say it's addictive. Well, it's not really an addiction. It's a, it's a habituation, but it's like an addiction because you're producing these endorphins, these opiate like substances that your body produces in response to the pain of, of, of working out um, to hopefully 
get you through, you know, so you don't feel depressed about uh, your life. Uh, that's the, the, the evolutionary response in the cre- creation of these endorphins. Um, and so over from one day to the next, day over day over day, week over week, year over year, these endorphins continue to be uh, present and you continue to kind of go down this um, habituation role where it's not only difficult to, to, to give it up. Like I quit racing because I was injured uh, and I was, it was clear I was never going to be at an elite level again because of the injuries that I had. And yet I continued to train 20 hours a week. For how long? Oh, for another five or eight years after I stopped. Like, how'd you stop? Well, then I never really stopped. I just tapered off. I just, I, it literally went from, from training 25 or 30 hours a week to retiring and only training 15 to 20 hours a week for a few years and coaching people. And because I was coaching people, I could argue that I needed to be, you know, riding my bike hard for three hours with my, with, with the, my protégés, with the, with the right. guys that I was coaching, or I needed to run with them, or I needed to do whatever with them, even though I wasn't racing. And by the way, I, I, I was racing. By then I was in my late 30s. So I just get into um, age group categories of races yeah. and, you know, win my age group. But I, I, that didn't mean anything to me. Um, and then it was then after that, I, I just it wasn't until I had something to replace that. Um, I mean, I guess sickness is too much of a obsession? word. But that, obsession? that obsession, that obsession. And then it became, you know, then I. Around that time, I started another business. I was already had been a business person for years. Maybe started another business that was um, more interesting to me and took more of my time and and gave me the permission to not train so hard. Yeah, but it's it's difficult. And the 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 flip side of that is people like today. I'm not injured. I'm not, and I'm pretty fit for my age. Some would say one of the fittest people you've seen for my age. And yeah, I keep thinking, sure. um, well, maybe I should go back and. Start training for, it. you know, a uh, triathlon or, or a marathon. You haven't run a mile, though, in how long? Like 25 years. So and every time I think that and I put on a pair of shoes and I head out the door to go run, I literally will get like 200 yards the road, down the road and I will go, the fuck am I thinking? <laughs> and I will walk home. And I just, I mean, literally, I will remember almost immediately how how much I had to overcome, how much training for these sorts of events is, is just about managing discomfort. And I don't want to be uncomfortable that way anymore. Yeah. 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 I have a friend, Julie, she's like a major marathon runner. And like, I want to say, remember her telling me a story about like, Oh, I, my parents and I like cried when I, she ended up going to Brown. She's super smart. Right. And she didn't get into like Princeton or something. And she was telling me this story about how it was like so emotional for her and her family. And I was thinking, man, that is why I was never a runner. I went to university of Colorado and I enjoy surfing. Like, it's just such a different, like it's a mindset thing. It's yeah. definitely a mindset thing. Yeah. But now, and now like, what's the obsession? Like, it seems like the obsession led to it turned into a different obsession. So what is it now? Yeah. I, I mean, I think, um, well, now it's, I, you know, I have a new, um, a new footwear company that I'm starting up. So yep. I'm channeling my energy and my excitement into, and my obsession into that. Um, and I, 
you know, th- this has risen in the last few months. Uh, as you're aware, we sold the company to Kraft Heinz uh, the first week of 2019. And we're coming up on And I was retired, yeah. <laughs> so to speak. And I just, it does not suit me to be retired. And, okay. and, and, <laughs> and I'm not, you know, I have a friend just down the, down the road from me and he trains, he's my age. He trains five hours a day. I'm like, dude, I like, whoa, like, what do you, and he's not even a competitive athlete. He just likes training and he just likes. Like what kind of plays, Like he's running or he's biking? He plays two hours of tennis in the morning. He lifts in the gym for an hour. He might run or do something else. And then he plays tennis again in the afternoon. Um, and he rides his bike as, at sundown and he's just always got to be doing something. And I'm, you know, I, I guess I applaud that. And maybe he didn't have that when he was younger. And so now it's, it's finally yeah, it's his thing, good. but um, he's asked me many times, like, uh, you know, do you want to go on a bike ride with me? And I'm like, no, dude, I already, like, I, uh, I did sprints this morning. I did my workout. Yeah, I, you know, or I lift. I, I I went to the gym and I lifted weights. My workout is done. I don't need to go again. Yeah. <laughs> are you working out every day? Like you're doing something every day? Would you say? Pretty much. Um, you know, a, a couple of days ago, I just uh, um, because of the timing of my workouts, I don't, I don't want to like I don't lift more than twice a week, and I don't uh, ride more than twice a week, and and th- these are. Uh, they're not hard and fast rules for me, but, but they work because when I work out, I work out hard enough that I should not be able to do it again the next day or even two days later. So like I rode my bike today, um, I I wouldn't want to ride a bike for another three or four days just because I worked hard enough that it was fun. And I, I did it, you know, with, with purpose, but I was done in an hour and 15 minutes and, and I got my workout in and I want to, I want to, build from that workout. I don't want to do four or five days of cycling in a row and have each day then become a successive um, drain on my system. Yeah. So I, I, I mix it up. So I'll have two days of riding, two days of paddling, two days of lifting. Um, and the other day, the I, I realized it was I'd done enough of these things the days before that I couldn't allow myself the luxury of doing any one of those again. So I just went down to the gym and I stretched and I talked to yeah. people. I stretched for an hour. I had a great time. And I did the sort of stretching that I sh- should be doing more of, but, but I don't. So yeah. even if I, I, people would say, well, that that's a workout. Well, you know, not the kind that I'm used to, but it, it, it was uh, serving a purpose physically for my body overall. So I'll, I'll count it as a workout. Yeah. What if, when I go for a long walk on the beach, does it count? How, how do you feel about walking? Oh yeah. I mean, I think, uh, you know, walking. So Carrie, my wife walks, she does, uh, seven or eight miles three days a week when we're in Florida and she has a a walking buddy and they, they are very good about heading out the door at nine o'clock and, and getting their walk in. And then she also, as you know, Carrie also lifts weights. She has a professional circus trainer who, who works on her, uh, stretching and acrobatics. Really, a circus? Yes. Is this in yeah, yeah. This is a, a new former, one. a former uh, Russian circus performer. He's he's my age, and he he's you know he's just a trainer now. He's got like six clients in my building Stop who it. who love working out with him, and he it's unbelievable. You know he'll he'll put them on uh, on the yoga blocks 
face down in a frog position and stand on their back. I, I mean, it's, it's brutal. I, I, it's crazy. Is Carrie knows, still doing a lot of yoga or not? No, really? she's not doing a lot of yoga, but that is, this is, uh, this is takes the place of yoga for her. Cool. Yeah. Um, but she walks. That's a big thing. Yeah. So yeah, to your point, walking is great. Walking is still the best thing you can do. And this new uh, footwear company that I'm starting is going to be, is, is, is basically suggesting that if you walk with the right footwear and you walk appropriately, um, it's one of the best things you can do for you, not just your foot health, but your overall health. Yeah. Are you allowed to tell us like a little bit more about your footwear company or is it still under wraps? No, nope. sworn to secrecy. That. Yeah. Fine. Well, well, hopefully we'll be able to talk about oh, that. Oh yeah. Well, hopefully I was just, uh, it's a long, you know, we're dealing with manufacturers in China yeah, no, now and, and design and the whole supply chain thing. And it's, it's exciting, but you know, it's, it's, it's not easy. Yeah, I, that's for sure. Does it feel good? Like how's that been feeling getting back into the entrepreneurial game again? Oh, Are it's great. Trying, I mean, good. I will tell you this, it feels good uh, to not have to put your house up for a personal guarantee <laughs> on, yeah. on financing. Um, you know, feels good to have my son as a co-founder. That's great. You know, Kyle's that's 27. Cool. He's all, he's all in. He's having a great time doing this. I love it. Yeah. yeah. I was just talking to somebody yesterday about our story, you know, like, and I'm talking all, always these entrepreneurs wanting to know whatever. And I was like, yeah. And then, you know, we were, we had Mark had a personal guarantee on our line of credit and everyone's just like, Oh my God, that sounds. Yeah. So yeah it, was just, up to, it was up to $10 million guarantee. I, one time. Yeah. I, I remember, yeah. I believe yeah. me. I remember. Yeah. yeah. It was. Yeah. 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 Um, we're like, Mark, don't just play it cool. Just <laughs> Please don't do anything in your personal life. We got to like yeah. keep on, keep it under wraps so we can keep the business running. Yep. But yeah, yep. thankfully well, it all worked out. So where's your like level of stress then at these days, would you say? Um, oh, it's uh, absolute minimal. It's yeah. uh, the, the least stressed I've ever been. And, um, and even again, starting people say, why, why would you start up a new company? Well, it's not, it's not stressful. I mean, I have, you know, I have, I have money now, so I don't have to stress about, you know, uh, am I um, risking my family's uh, a roof over their head and, and belly and food in their bellies to start a new business? No, it's, you know, this is. Yeah. You're not dealing with investors. You're right. Not, I mean, right. I had that yeah. was probably more the personal risk, but interesting. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So back to the training thing. So walking's good. This, I like really want to know more about this Russian <laughs> circus guy this sounds like so fascinating this is like well Carrie, Carrie said her her like her goal and she might have told you this at one point is to be able to do splits yeah right and she's never been she carries you know she's 510 she's got really long legs she's not really set up to be able to, to do gymnastic moves like that so she it was a challenge for her cool. and uh and so she has all of these exercises and stretches and and things that she does with with uh, Eugene, her trainer, that um, is contemplated to, you know, make her more flexible, far more flexible than say regular yoga would do. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah, because Carrie was she was into yoga for a while. Yeah, yeah, pretty. Yeah. What about you? You doing any yoga? No, not doing any yoga. I should, I know, but um, you know, it's uh, well. First of all, I I can't. So many things to do in so little time, as they say, right. Throughout the day, I've, I'm, I'm literally, I'm retired and I, and I find at the end of the day, where'd the day go? I like, I, I'm supposed to be puttering around looking at, you know, uh, building 
you know, furniture as a hobby or something like that because I'm retired, but no, I'm fully busy, you know, all day long doing stuff. So I, so the yoga thing doesn't fit in my, in my schedule in that regard. Yeah. And I'm part of, part of this process of looking into um, uh, the footwear, the side of this industry that I'm going to enter has to do with, with the health of the feet and the strength of the feet. And the fact that, that most of who we are and our power and our balance emanate from the feet. So a focus on the core, which has been the big focus for the last, you know, 10 or 15 years, um, everything is about the core, um, may be a little bit misdirected in, the, in this new way of thinking. So I'm, I'm much more looking at things from the ground up. Yeah. I love that. I was just reading this article that was talking about hands, like how if you, you put like, we always do this with our little guys, right? You put like an 18 month old on a bar and they grip on and they can hang on for, for a long time. And that's like a really important, you know, shoulders up position that we should be able to maintain as we age. And it's like an interesting test. If you can hang from something for 90 seconds of like your, kind of just health in general and where you're at from a strength perspective, because it's like something that's inherent when we're young and we just live these lives like, you know, us right now in front of the computer with our shoulders hunched yeah, over yeah. and we lose that ability. So I wonder if there's like some, some tie there with the hands and the feet. And I, I absolutely think there is, um, you know, because we're bipedal uh, and we're one of the few animals that is bipedal. We're basically like a segue. I mean, how is it that we don't fall over every second of every day? You know, other animals have four legs. They, yeah. they sort of balance out that way. We're tr- trying to do whatever we do on two legs, which is not a very great um, design if, for, for balance. So it really comes down to the feet, the actual, the grip strength of the feet. Uh, in addition to, um, you know, the, the, the balance centers in the brain, but the grip strength of the feet is probably as important as grip strength in the hands. And uh, one of the markers, as you just alluded to, one of the markers of longevity is grip strength. So when they take, they look at old people, they actually put a a meter in their hand, you know, like, like like a squeeze meter and they measure grip strength and they can predict um, how strong the body is throughout just by measuring grip strength. It's a great that and say how fast you can walk slash run a mile would be um, major metrics of, of longevity. Interesting. I hadn't heard this. I need to get a pull-up bar now, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Hang from, I don't know about, what about jumping? I also was reading some doctor was saying that like, we should be jumping 40 times a day for longevity or something. Just like Rick had mentioned this to me at one point, maybe after he read your book. So Rick kind of like our third silent co-founder of Primal Kitchen. And he, you guys kind of knew each other through similar circles back in the day riding bikes. I remember Rick got to a very unhealthy place before he met you and started working at Primal. And then really, he's he's totally one of those like obsessive workout people who just tortured himself for yep. no other purpose than torturing himself, like really early crazy bike rides. But then he toned it back and focused on recovering. He had like a pretty transformational change right when he came over. But um, well, just to, to, to add to that, he was one of those guys who would ride 50 or 60 miles several times a week yeah. and then, you know, overeat the carbohydrates to refill the glycogen because he knew he was going to ride hard again. Totally. And the effect was he 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 never 
trained his body to burn fat efficiently. He just trained it to burn carbohydrates better. And, and as a result of his eating carbohydrates, he gained some weight over the years and he put, yeah. he'd put on, you know, 20 or 30 extra pounds just, and even though he was like at the, at, he was riding as hard and as much as yeah. he'd ever ridden, he was not able to, um, to burn those calories off because he was eating so much in the way of carbohydrates. Yeah. And he was also, he was one who was like not eating and then he'd forget. And then, some, you know, which maybe was just to his benefit, but then he would break the fast with like a Starbucks muffin that someone picked up on their way into the office. And yep. yeah. Yeah. But I don't remember where I was going with this, but maybe just overtraining. I don't know. This is just interesting on switching it up. Were you ever when you, this, I'm totally going on a tangent here, but when you were training and when you were coaching, I mean, I know carb loading wasn't kind of, I would say mainstream still is the, like, you know, the football team still probably does pasta dinner on Friday night. Right. Like I know that conversation started to change in like elite athletes at the time, kind of maybe, I don't know, later when you were coaching, I'm not really sure, but were you ever training like fat adapted or on fat or was it still like the days of goo the whole time you were training? I was all with the whole time I was training. It was all carbs. Yeah. It was uh goo and, and Gatorade. Um, I, I, I told you about carboconcentrate, which is yeah. a, one of the products yeah. I, I developed and, um, um, we, uh, we created a product that I called I was at a different company and I called it power gel. Okay. Um, and this was around the time power bar came out. So, so um, the owners of power bar hadn't put out a gel yet. So the name was available and I wanted to trademark the name power gel. And um, uh, but I was working for a company that uh, had other sort of core competencies and were better in the, in the vitamin area than they were in the, ingestible supplement area into or ingestible um, uh, nutritional area. So we kind of let that whole business fall aside. And that's when goo came along. They were the, we were before goo and then goo came out and did okay. And then you saw all sorts of concoctions that were carbohydrate based uh, replenishment drinks. And, and that continue that continues till through today. Okay. So wasn't Johnny G one of the first guys who started doing this whole training with fat thing that you Johnny G was really a, a true pioneer. And well, I remember tell everyone who Johnny G is. So they just have the background. So Johnny G is a South African guy who moved to Los Angeles in the eighties to become a personal trainer. He had a training gym in, uh, uh, in West LA with another guy, another South African, Greg Isaacs. Johnny was always inventing stuff and coming up with new ways to work out. And he started by having these classes on rainy days uh, in, in a garage where he'd invite people to ride uh, on a stationary bike, but it, it was a trainer. So you'd put your road bike, the actual the bike that you would have ridden oh, outside on a, you'd take the front wheel off and mount it to something and the back wheel would spin against the resistance thing. And he, and he put music on and coach these rides and he, and he called it spinning. And over the years, he developed a system where he would uh, coach people uh, on, on these bikes and he had these classes and he would call them spinning classes. So Johnny G is the inventor of spinning. Got it. Now, at the time he was doing this, he was really into cycling, clearly. He was training for Race Across America, which was a multi-day event where you rode your bike from Santa Monica to New York. And people would do it in uh, usually around nine days. It's, it's a, a brutal event. 
they used to have a motto, uh, sleep cheap. And uh, you would have in those races, you'd have a, um, uh, a vehicle, a support vehicle who was responsible for keeping you alive. Because imagine on these remote roads at two o'clock in the morning, three o'clock in the morning, four o'clock in the morning, you're driving, you're riding your bike on a street that has no lights on it uh, or a highway even. Um, and you're trying to put in your 275 miles for that day. Uh, and you would be allowed, uh, well, you could pull over whenever you wanted and sleep. But if if you pulled over, then your competitor would go by you and get 40 or 50 miles on you while you're sleeping. Did so you ever this, do this? No, God, no. Okay. But Brad, I don't know if you ever heard this story, but Brad crewed for he was one of the on, on one of the support crews for Johnny G. Oh, he was for one year on his race across America. Okay. Yeah, different different story. So Brad anyway, is. A, I mean, tell everyone who Brad is. Yeah, so Brad's the co-author of my books. Brad Kearns. Um, he's been on the pod. He was hosting the podcast on and off over the years. He has um, a wonderful new keto nut butter called what's it called? Brad. Brad's Dignity. yeah, Brad's magic butter or something like that. And I, it's it, amazing. You guys can find it. Yeah, on no, it's really good. It's one of the best really butters good. ever. Yeah. Um, so anyway, so Johnny G would train for this, um, for this race across America. And, uh, you know, he would leave like at, uh, six o'clock at night on Friday, Friday night. And we'd, sometimes we'd be, I, as I remember this, right. We'd be heading out, uh, on a Sunday ride and Johnny would be coming back from the same ride. He started Friday night. Uh, you know, and, but his thing was he wanted to, um, become better at burning fat. So what he, he would fill his bike water bottle full of avocado oil and I think lemon juice as an emulsifier. And, and that's hundred percent fat, right? Cause he, he knew that he wasn't going to be able to replenish all of the glycogen, all of the carbohydrate. It was just gonna be way too much, um, I mean, difficult. I'm all for avocado oil, clearly, but that sounds. No, it, it was no. And, and this was back before avocado oil was. I think he was putting like avocado mush or mash. or. Oh, oil. he was like, yeah. Uh, blending could, I don't even think you could get avocado oil, as he would say in his South African <laughs> yeah. accent. Yeah, yeah. Um, but he was but I was fascinated by the science that he was. I knew it. I knew the science existed, but he was actually exemplifying the science where he was training his body to burn fat by basically withholding carbohydrate and only providing short chain and medium chain fatty acids as a substrate. Um, this is also where uh, MCT oil came into the picture, mm -hmm. medium chain triglycerides or MCT oil. Uh, yeah. So it was Johnny was, and this is in the, what is this? The late eighties, early nineties that this was, all happening. So this and is are almost, you done coaching at this point when you kind of like, no, this was, this was in the thick of my coaching. So I was coaching, as I recall, I was coaching the pioneer triathlon team and we were traveling around the world. Brad was one of my athletes. That's where I met yeah. Brad Kearns. Yeah. Um, I was, he was the third ranked triathlete in the world in those days. And uh, he was on the team. And so we, and he was, he was one of those guys who wouldn't just wouldn't listen to me about dial your training back a little bit. You know, you'll, you'll do more with less, but, um, you know, he was he was also on on that um, fear of missing out in a different sense. He was fear he, he would if he heard that his major uh, competition, Mike Pig, was doing you know 
275 miles a week. Brad said, well, I have to do 280. (laughs) And that's just on the bike, by the way. I interviewed my sister-in-law's sister, Amy Van Dyken Roan. She's like a six-time Olympic. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, And she said the same thing. She said when she was training, she was training, you know, for like five years in the Olympic Training Center, whatever, six days a week. But the drive for her was like, if I knew if I wasn't in the pool, my competitor was. And like the thought, the like mindset of like, if I miss one hour, they're one hour ahead of me. But Brad is like, he has enough energy to be able to sustain overtraining. I mean, of anyone I know, I mean, I say that facetiously, but he's just got like, he is like a, he's like an eternal fountain of energy. Is he not? He is. And that was, that's a problem when you take, when you go to the well too many times, which he did. Okay. So Uh, did you introduce all these people to fat? Did you guys start trying it or was this? No, we didn't. No, we didn't. We didn't do the fat in those days. Um, We were still, basically um, training to uh, now I was, I was into low level aerobic training. So I was trying to train the body to be more efficient, burning fat by reducing the training load um, at, at a lower heart rate, more, more distance, but a lower heart rate in those days. So that was sort of starting to come to the forefront, but the idea was still sort of, you had to, you had to manage carbohydrate uh, and you had to, God forbid you ran out of glycogen uh, and the, the literal wheels would fall off. So it wasn't until 10 or 15 years ago, maybe 15 years ago, we really started looking at fat as uh, you know, an alternative source for endurance training that had real value and wasn't just some uh, you know, wacky idea by one guy trying to train for Race Across America. Yeah. Now, now there are lots of athletes, uh, you know, Zach Bitter is famously, you know, one of the best uh, uh, ultra runners ever to live. And he's trains on, uh, you know, he trains keto and he sets world records uh, and he does events sometimes without eating anything or very much at all, just drinking, uh, drinking water because he's so good at um, he's so efficient with his metabolic flexibility. Interesting. Well, this has been, I feel like I learned a lot today. This has been fascinating. And we didn't talk, I'm going to have to re-record the intro because we didn't talk about anything we said we were going to talk about, but it is even better. So <laughs> I have two final questions for you. Okay. One, for everybody listening, I want one piece of advice on diet. Like if people could just do one thing different every day, what would, what would you give? What would you tell them? Um, I mean, you know, there's, there's a list of uh, priorities and probably the highest priority is if you could do one thing differently, it would be to eliminate industrial seed oils. This, but just below that would be to eliminate, um, sh- you know, added sugars and sweets. So if you got rid of sugared beverages, um, sh- pies, cakes, candies, desserts, and all that stuff, those, those two things, the elimination of industrial seed oils. And by this, we mean canola, corn oil, soybean oil, sunflower, safflower oil. Those are just insidious oils that you find everywhere. Get rid of those and get rid of the sugars. Yeah, You're 80% uh, on your way to reacquiring the metabolism you were born with, which will enable you to become metabolically flexible, which will enable you to go long periods of time without eating. And, and in so doing, to not have hunger be the main driver of every decision you make throughout the yeah. day. Damn addictive sugar. Okay. Last one for everybody. Like, you know, some people are training, some people aren't. What's one 
fitness advice for everybody? What's one piece of fitness advice? You oh, do? I think um, uh, this, and this just arose from the discussion we had half an hour ago. Um, remember why you're training, right? You're, you're training to become fitter, to become better at what you want to do, not just to go hammer yourself on a daily basis. So don't lose sight of the fact that that training, that fitness is a process that requires that you do a little bit more than the body is used to doing, but that you also allow time for recovery so that you repair and you, you actually do become better as a result of having gone to the gym and done what you did or as a result of having gone for that five mile run. I love it. All right, Mark, this was great. Look forward to next week. Thanks so much. Okay. Take Bye care. everyone. Bye.